Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. It's time for the view from the opposition. This week it comes from Richie Mills, who covers Brighton home and away. Yes, Newcastle United face Brighton up at St James Park on Thursday. Their game in hand on Manchester United and Liverpool. Richie, thank you very much for popping up the podcast. How are we keeping? Yes, all good, thanks. All good. Yourself? I'm good, I'm good. I'm looking forward to Thursday. I think it's going to be a good game. There's a, a little bit of doom and gloom. I think there's a lot of nerves up here on Tyneside, but I'm fully confident that Newcastle are going to pick up three points. But I do think it's going to be one hell of a test. And of course, Brighton going for Europe themselves, coming to St. James Park after beating Arsenal 3-0 and ending their chances of winning the title. What is it like at the moment to cover Brighton and just how good have they been this season? Yeah, I mean, there's a real uh, feel-good factor at the moment for Brighton. Um, they, uh, they've they got a fantastic coach who is attracting plaudits left, right and centre. He's now, similar to what, what um, former Brighton boss Graham Potter was like, he was basically, whenever a vacancy came up at a big club, he was linked. And that's, um, you know, off the back of the fantastic work he, he's done. Um, I think I mentioned on a previous podcast I came on with your good self uh, early season that, Deserby has essentially um, built on the foundation laid by Graham Potter and obviously the um, likes of Tony Bloom, Paul Barber and, and co at Brighton with the fantastic structure that they have. And he's improved them in terms of goals scored, um, expected goals, chances created, big chances converted. He's turned them from a team that were sort of mid-table in that regard to um, right in the top six and then possession wise I think only Manchester City are higher. I mean to go for example to have 60% possession at the Emirates against a team you know who had very realistic title ambitions and were for 95% of this season the best team in the league or so and to just dismantle them like that takes some doing so it's it's yeah it's a remarkable season uh, and, and I think it's it's well worth pointing out that Brighton started the season very well under Graham Potter. He left for Chelsea uh, with everyone in the tea lady um, in, uh, in in September time. And after a little bit of a slow start, Deserby's really sort of um, uh, implemented his principles. I, I'm recently reading a piece from oh, an, um, an interview with uh, Brighton defender Joel Veltman, essentially saying what Deserby was asking of them was, quote, insane. Because they were just like these tactics are nuts. Like we, this is this is such a uh, it requires so much sort of attention and care and detail and and practice to, to, to perfect it. And it, if it does go wrong, it can go badly wrong, as they showed at Everton uh, in that five-one loss. But for them to yeah to lose, keep losing their top players, but somehow get better, a new coach in, um, and yes, just to finish off. 26 years ago, Brighton were one game away from dropping out of the Football League entirely. So it really is a sort of, not quite a rags to riches story, but do you believe in miracles? Yes. <laughs> I think they're becoming everyone's second favourite club, really. They are a joy to watch. And you mentioned there that Arsenal game, beating them 3-0. I didn't see the game, so I'm going to ask you to explain to someone who didn't watch the game just how well they played and if you're Newcastle and I knew Eddie Howe, how Brighton played against Arsenal, are you sitting there and if you are allowing yourself to be fearful, would that be justified? Yeah, well, I think Brighton players and the manager said they don't fear anyone at the moment. They can take on their own game and they're 
they believe that they can beat anyone on their day. I think that's a, a massive change in mentality. Deserve is always talking about that sort of, we must dream for Europe. We must, you know, push ourselves to the next level. And I think that was a different note from Potter, who was much more reserved and was just kind of more cliche, you know, game by game type thing. But yes, yeah, so for the Arsenal game, it was a real um, sort of uh, game of chess in the first half. Arsenal, when they beat... Um, Sorry, it's getting on a slight off tangent here, but when Arsenal beat Brighton 4-2 on New Year's Day, their their high pressing tactics stifled Brighton and forced them into mistakes. And usually when the um, Brighton invite uh, a pressing side on, their passing ability is good enough to outmaneuver it and get past it and then set up a numerical advantage further up the pitch. They didn't do that um, on New Year's Eve. Arsenal were fantastic in that and... Um, and they sort of blew them away in the first hour or so before Brighton uh, made a good match of it in the end. Um, so this time they they tried to adopt similar tactics, but as the game wore on, Brighton actually got wise to that high pressing line. And what was important was the likes of um, striker Evan Ferguson, another revelation from Brighton season, just eighteen years of old, eighteen years of age. Sorry, um, the likes of uh, Gilmore and Gross were sort of uh, the ball wasn't able to get to them quite a lot of the times because of Arsenal's high pressing line. But then uh, the likes of McAllister and um, and Ferguson would drop deeper, and then that would allow um, that would sort of um, a, a number of Arsenal players would then go towards them, and that would leave more spaces. So they were just they were sort of thinking as they went on. And by the end of the game, you couldn't. I mean, you wouldn't say that Brighton. Um, Arsenal were title challengers by that because they just they outfought and outthought them because it was just it was a fantastic performance. Um, they they ground them down. The, the number of points came their way from the likes of Gary Neville, Roy Keane, Patrick Vieira. They were just singing their praises. Um, so yes, it'll be interesting to see what tactics Newcastle do deploy. Um, I do think one thing that is um, helpful for. Uh, Newcastle's got they've got so much power and pace and I think that is something that sometimes can hurt Brighton um, defensively but it will be interesting to see what sort of approach they go for in terms of maybe sitting deep or pressing hard pitch um, it should be a really really good contest but I yeah I, I do think this Brighton team deserve a lot of respect. You mentioned there the high press of Arsenal and I think our listeners listening to this will go, well, okay, Newcastle can do that. I suppose the way to make that successful is that you've then got to be clinical when you do get the ball. And because, as you say, there's a good chance Brighton will wear you down and then, uh, you know, come back at you. But Everton, when they beat Brighton 5-1 a couple of weeks back, they didn't do the high press online, did they? They did something totally different. Yes. Um, so... Sean Dyche has had quite a lot of success against Brighton. Obviously, they've had different iterations of teams to face over the years. But what there's a number of factors why Everton uh, beat Brighton 5-1 that day. One, Everton were fantastic. They got their tactics so, so darn right. Um, and also, uh, secondly, Brighton were a few percent or so off their best. There was quite a lot more... Um, uh, sloppiness in in their play, lack of precision with their passing, the number of times they were turned over in um, Everton's half, and then Everton would hit them on the counter attack. You could lost count, and then also 
Brighton do, and this is not an excuse, but it doesn't help. Um, Brighton do have a fair amount of injuries um, at the moment, excuse me, and they also don't have that much um, wider squad depth at the moment, so they have to rely on sometimes. Well, if you look at their benches, a lot of there's a lot of under twenty one players, there's a lot of teenagers there as well. Um, there's sort of a, a case of um, shoehorning players into different positions just to fill the gaps. Um, for example, in recent weeks. Uh, Moises Caicedo, who's a you know a really good sort of um, you know, ball destroying midfielder in, in the centre of the park, he's had to play at right back. He's done a pretty good job. Pascal Gross has also played there. They've had to swap people around. Um, so, but going back to what Everton did well is they formed uh, a low block. Um, they got lots of men behind the ball, but they just packed the midfield and really. Um, were just a very sort of solid unit that would just shift from left to right. And um, it was just a case of like Gandalf, you shall not pass. They just didn't get anywhere near that. And then because Brighton weren't at their best, um, they would just hit them on the counter-attack and they and they exposed Brighton with a ruthless deficiency. So, yes, if I mean, as I said before, Newcastle have got loads of power and pace. If they, if they can sort of turn the ball over and then, and then run at them, Brighton could be in all sorts of bother. I do also think that the it's um, just the accumulation of games, the miles on the clock for Brighton, that could play a factor as, as well. We saw there was obviously they, they beat uh, Manchester United a few days before the Everton game. That took a lot out of them, and then there was a massive drop off for Everton. This is only again four or five day turnaround, so that could be a factor. Um, and you know, going to St James's Park um, on a Thursday night might not be. Um, well, the most inviting atmosphere for them. It's interesting there you say about Everton, and I think our listeners again will hear what you're saying and saying, well, Newcastle previously have been able to do that as well. They're really ferocious on the counter when they get going, but equally, they can press high, and when they've pressed high successfully this season, few teams have been able to handle them. I think what might worry some Newcastle fans is, A, they're looking really tired, Newcastle. I mean, against Leeds, they look like they were running on empty. And B, they're not creating too much. And that clinical edge, that clinical touch is lacking from them at the moment. You know, they con- they scored two penalties against Leeds, but didn't really create much else. Against Arsenal, they had a few chances, but didn't make them pay. And then Arsenal go and win the game. So, Newcastle... Obviously, they're not going to underestimate Brighton. They'll know exactly what 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 they're going to face, but they've got to make sure that they do what they can, and, and that is take their chances, because otherwise Brighton will come, I think, and, and will punish um, Newcastle if they don't take their chances and equally allow them in at the back, because that's another thing which has been not perfect of late, uh, which has been quite annoying as well, given Newcastle's fantastic... Uh, strength which has been the defense but of late the teams have i don't want to say worked them out because it's not working them out teams have just been better than them and they've got the better of them in, in defense leads targeted both flanks specifically the right hand side and got the better queue in trippier two uh, poor goals to concede from newcastle's point of view i think and if newcastle allow brighton the space and time that they allowed leads in certain parts of the game but more specifically that they allowed uh, Arsenal, and I do feel a little bit for Newcastle. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So I, I guess um, maybe there are some similarities with um, the from yeah from an outsider sort of looking in. I, I'd say that yeah, Newcastle have um, you know a very good first eleven, but maybe similar to Brighton, don't have the depth that they'd like to go to 15, 16 plus. And obviously, I guess that will change if you make some um, signings in, in, in the summer. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you actually was just in terms of. Um, the, the feeling at the moment with obviously Liverpool hot on your heels, Manchester United also there. Is, is there a feeling that this could slip away? And um, how sort of bigger picture, how much of a setback would that be for you guys? I don't think it would be a, a setback because if you offered Newcastle United to finish in the top 10 this season, they would have taken your hand off because this time last year we were celebrating just retaining the Premier League status. So to be leading the race of the top four at this point in the season is something that no one would have ever uh, had said Newcastle were capable of doing. The fact that we're here and if they missed out, it would be disappointing. But in terms of a setback, I don't think it would be that much of a setback because they've done more than anyone had anticipated, expected. Uh, and, and I guess in many ways, getting in the top four is brilliant. And it means you can sign a better class of player. But also what it means is, is that you have to accelerate your transfer plan. So what you were going to do in the summer had you finished 7th, 8th, ninth, or 10th is going to be totally different to what you do if you finish 3rd or 4th because you've got to build a squad capable of competing on four fronts, haven't you? And you, don't, you need to build a squad which allows you to play European football, the highest European level of European football, but also your Premier League campaign doesn't suffer. We saw the last time Newcastle were in Europe when Alan Pardew that, you know, they got to the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup or Europa League, I think. I can't remember what it was called. Um, but then they finished 15th, 16th in the league, having finished fifth the season before. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one. But yeah, I don't think it's a setback in terms of the, if they miss out. I think it'll just be disappointing. There are some nerves definitely within the fan base. I think we're naive not to accept that, but I'm fully confident Newcastle will be Brighton and Leicester and secure Champions League football. I think as long as those nerves don't slip into the stadium on Thursday, Newcastle will be just fine. I think the first goal is absolutely key, though. If Brighton get a first goal, then you watch that ferocious atmosphere that will start, be there at the beginning of the game, that'll slowly you know, slip away into nerves, and that can be... A very powerful tool for the opposition. So I think first goal is key. I think Newcastle will get an early goal. I think they will win on Thursday and take that step forward. But yeah, look, it's been a tremendous season. Whatever happens for Newcastle, it would be a shame if they don't get over the line. But, you know, it's a bit like Brighton. I don't know, what was the aim at the start of the season? Was European football really the aim? No. It, it would have been, yeah, as I say, um, well, sorry, as I didn't say, last season, Brighton uh, had their best ever Premier League finish. They came ninth. Um, I think their best ever finish uh, in sort of top flight history was back in the 80s. And I think they, they got maybe one more point at like 52 points. But yeah, I think it would have, when when Brighton got promoted in, into the, in the Premier League in 2017, Tony Bloomer said, we want to become a top 10 team. Uh, and that was something that was a gradual process that um, Chris Hutton started. Uh, obviously, your listeners will know him very well. Um, 
and then Graham Potter built on that and now Deserby has accelerated that and it's just on, on that sort of topic about skipping ahead I guess what's interesting for Brighton is that they have a they're a sort of I'd say a medium to long-term planning club a lot of the time they don't really do signings for the here and now um so they've got a they have a what Brighton fans call their loan army uh they have so many players out on you know season long loans for the um for the campaign across the world they use um uh there's a a Belgian club called Union SJ um where Tony Bloom is also the majority shareholder and a lot of time when Brighton players um who are signed they don't have work permits then they'll play in Belgium to get that work permit they'll get used to sort of the European style of play obviously which is a little bit different from English but that will get them uh, acclimatized somewhat and then they'll come back firing so Kara Matoma um has been an unbelievable acquisition for Brighton 2.5 million from Kawasaki Frontale in Japan in 2021. He spent last season alone at Union SJ and then he's been um, fantastic for Brighton. I think he scored 10 goals in all competitions um, and close to that in, in assists as well. Um, so, but yeah, so what's interesting is that Brighton have these players out on loan, but they were signed a number of years ago. And now that the acceleration of the club has happened, these players might not be um fit for purpose in the sense that the sort of the trajectory has overtaken where they were going so it's an interesting dilemma that they're in um but yes i i think um the, no way would brighton have thought they'd be in this position uh and i mean this is probably going down the rabbit hole but the number of times that brighton have been um apologized to by the pgmol for refereeing mistakes during games um especially the spurs one i'm sure if you saw tottenham beat Brighton 2-1 uh, back in April, that was um, a robbery. Uh, they probably should have won that game. And if that is the difference in the end between them getting into Europe or not, that will be um, very, very hard to take. Our listeners will be screaming at you now, Richie, saying, do not mention VAR. Don't mention it because I complain weekly about the state of VAR. An absolute disgrace. And yes, I feel for Brighton in that case because... What good is an apology going to do? In fact, Howard Webb was on the radio this morning. I texted into that radio station saying, ask Howard Webb, what good does an apology do to a team that misses out on Europe? What good does you saying sorry do for them? Absolute disgrace. But, hey, benefits Newcastle will take it, okay? Did he respond? No, they didn't ask the question, unfortunately. (sighs) But, hey, look, Bar's absolutely disgraceful. It is a joke, but that's that's a that's a subject for another podcast. And our listeners are sick of me saying it. Uh, but now that Brighton are in the position where they could qualify for Europe, how like obviously they want it. Do, like, are, are are there nerves there from the Brighton point of view? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess you could say that the expectation from them is maybe less than others. Um, I personally feel that this is a season where they might need to take this chance because I think there's sort of similarities between this season and the season where Leicester City won the league all those years ago. You know, that was when obviously Leicester won it. I think Tottenham came second and the likes of Manchester City, um, Man United, Liverpool and co weren't at the races. And that's similar to this season. You know, you've got Tottenham struggling. Liverpool are only coming good now. Um, but they were sort of mid-table. Obviously, Chelsea are well off it this year. 
even Manchester United are in sort of transition. So this is, I think, the real time for them to take it. It is important to point out Brighton do have uh, a game in hand on Newcastle. They have two games in hand on uh, Tottenham and Aston Villa, who it seems as if, from a Brighton perspective, the Champions League is probably too far out of reach, but they are in pole position to get Europa League um, with, obviously, up behind Liverpool, if, if, you know, whatever happens there. But I'd say what doesn't help Brighton is that they've got really tough games as well in a very short period. So they've already played, I think, a few, four games, I think, this month already, and they've got to play four more uh, for a team that really can't afford to have any more injuries. Um, they've already got um, the likes of uh, Adam Alana, who's been out for a number of months, which is a big, big blow. Winger Jeremy Salmiento's been out. Solid March is basically, I think it seems as if he's been ruled out for the season. He's been fantastic. Uh, similar to Matoma, sort of levels of quality. Joel Veltman's been out injured. Adam Webster's been out injured. Tarek Lamptey's been out injured. Um, Brighton is it's almost like a Fred Bear squad at the moment. So they've got Newcastle, obviously, which is a very, very tough game to go to. Um, they've got Southampton, which is a game you'd on paper you'd say they'd like to win, but it's only three days after the Newcastle game, so you don't know how fit they will be for that one. Then they've got Manchester City. That game might not be as hard if City win the league by then. They could potentially rest some players, focus, you know, if they get into the Champions League final, they could have an eye on that. Uh, and then they've got Aston Villa away on the final day of the season. And I, from a Brighton perspective, everyone is hoping that that is not going to be sort of a winner-takes-all Europa League or Conference League tie. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say there's, I'd say it's more optimism than nerves and, and sort of this is just a fantastic opportunity and we need to enjoy it. And I think that's what Deserve is trying to instill in them. And I think he's, the way that they play, there's such bravery in, in how they do it to sort of, there's so many times when I'll have my sort of heart in my mouth because Jason Steele will be sort of tiptoeing around on the ball and then like several players will be running at him and he'll just knock it around them or something like that. And then they're able to invite the press. And um, so, yes, I, I think nerves, no. Um, but I do definitely think there's um, this is a, a, a massive opportunity that they really can't afford to miss. Thank you very much for listening to the episode so far, Andrew Musgrave here. I just want to point you guys in the direction of a live event that we're holding on May the 25th. That's a Thursday night. We'll be at the Tyneside Irish Centre myself and Newcastle United writer Kieran Kelly and Newcastle United editor Aaron Stokes and our chief Newcastle United writer Lee Ryder. The Daily Mirror Simon Bird will also be on the panel. But to kick things off, we'll have a club legend with us. Arguably one of the best crossers of the ball ever to play in black and white. Alan Shearer is a massive fan of this man. It is Norberto Solano. This is your opportunity to come and meet a Newcastle United legend and talk about all things Newcastle United with our panel. Hopefully, by that time, Newcastle will have secured top four football, so there's going to be plenty to talk about. The brilliant season so far, what's to come in the summer transfer window, and then those nights on the continent, hopefully against Barcelona or an Inter Milan. It's going to be a great night. To secure your ticket, hit that link in the description to this episode and head over to eventbrite.com. And uh, yeah, we'd love to see you. We can't wait to see you. It's going to be a great evening, raising really important funds as well for the Newcastle United fans food bank. So hit that link, secure your ticket, and we look forward to seeing you on May the 25th. It's interesting you mentioned Jason Steele because if I'm not mistaken, he, did, he, he was quite close a couple of times against Arsenal 
um, in, in, in giving the ball away when they try to press. And Newcastle have at times this season, in my opinion, been the best pressing side in the Premier League and they've caught out goalkeepers, they've caught out centre-backs when they've tried to pass it out. So if they can do that again uh, against Brighton on Thursday, it could be a way into getting a, a couple of goals. I'm sure Eddie Howe is, is well aware of that. Um, I think a lot of people, Richie, would like to know just how Brighton have continued the success off the field. You mentioned how they you know they send players out on loan and, and what have you. But how have they continued in such good fashion when they lost Dan Ashworth? So, I think um, Dan Ashworth actually said why Brighton are such a well-run club uh, when he was there. And he, I think he essentially said that, um, to use his words, right, there's a wheel and there's many spokes in that wheel of the different departments of Brighton. And Dan Ashworth filled a very important role of that at Brighton. Um, but there were so many other people waiting in the wings to step up. Uh, it's more about the system that they put in place rather than the individual. So the whole sort of premise is that we can keep on running a club well, we can lose these people, but because we're the the systems in place are so well thought out and so um, ahead of their time. You know, many people have said that sort of Brighton are years ahead of others in terms of uh, talent acquisition from, you know, signing players because they can't compete financially with all the top teams. So they have to think, you know, outside the box. Um, so, you know, t- for example, just to sign Matoma, Caicedo, McAllister and Evan Ferguson, all for under a combined 15 million is madness. And you could probably get more than 200 million for those players now. And, you know, all of them are under 25. Ferguson's 18, Caicedo's 21, McCann's 24, World Cup winner now. It's just, they, a number of years ago, uh, I think it was in 2018, Tony Bloom essentially talked about... um, making Brighton's pounds work harder than everyone else's. They wanted to be at the forefront of sort of, I guess what people probably um, have called sort of money ball, but they just wanted to have a, a much more um, uh, forward thinking approach. And they, the sort of the days of splashing uh, the cash on, on, I guess, 25-year-old plus players like they did with, I'm not sure if, if you know these guys, but Ali Reza, Hambach, uh, was 17 million, Jürgen Lacardia, 15 million. They were big transfer flops. And now their sort of approach is, we'll just buy younger players for, you know, several million. And if we if they don't work out, they don't work out, but we haven't lost that much. Um, and even then this year, they, they lost Mark Kukurea for Chelsea for, to 55 million, initial 55 million and signed Purvis to Stupinian for 15 million. And he's probably turned out to be a better player. He scored more goals, um, sorry, same amount of goals, but he's got way more assists and he's, um, and Kukurea hasn't exactly done particularly well at, at Chelsea. So it's no no real loss there for, for Brighton. So they've just got this, um, this it, it, it's in, sometimes it's head scratching how they keep proving people wrong. Because there's a number of times when I've written articles saying, I don't think that that was right. I think you need a bit more insurance in that position. Um, but they just keep 
doing well and and just on, on Dashworth they've got David Weirin who's basically just taken up the reins and, and continued on and and Brighton have carried on their merry way I do think at some point the worry is surely the wheels are going to come off they can't keep doing incredible transfer you know finding transfer gems because if they lose Picasso and Caicedo that's a big big loss this summer but they keep on proving me and everyone else wrong just in terms of you know how they sign these players, you know, whether they're, they're scouting and you know, they've got the contacts. What was Dan Ashworth's role in, in making sure that those connections and pathways were there? I'm just trying to get a, an insight into, uh, you know, what it might be like at Newcastle in three or four years' time, assuming Dan Ashworth does what he did at Brighton here on Tyneside. Well, I, I think from from what I remember of, uh, when he was there, it was he, he had sort of... Um, put together this sort of through that Brighton way, this sort of talent identification of um, very much focus. He was a big, big part of, of sort of shifting the age bracket from young up and coming hidden talents from across the world. Brighton have got a very, very good scouting network, um, but they, yeah, they sort of shifted tack. Uh, they just felt we, we can, we can find new ways to, to, to sort of get around other people. Um and, and one way that they've done it, and Dan Ashworth was was a part of this, um, they uh, they've decided to go to South America to look at young up and coming talents. A lot of the time, you might see that um, Benfica or other teams in sort of Portugal or Spain will sign those players from South America, um, and then they'll sell them on for big big fees to Europe or you know and stuff like that. But Brighton are going straight there and and um, and they they're able to usually offer better wages than those leagues. Um, so and and that's what's allowed them to sign the likes of Caicedo. There's also Julio Enciso, who's a 19 year old um, Paraguayan who's really hit the ground. Well, he's he's really come uh, into form the last couple of months. An 18 year old Facundo Bonanote, who's um, uh, Carlos Tevez said he's sort of you know messy like, um, which is a heck of a claim. Uh, but yeah, so he was he was definitely part of a, I think sort of the sharpening of the knife and, and and sort of having that more surgical type accuracy. But um, yeah, it was definitely a, a team effort. Music to Newcastle United fans' ears there about what the future could hold here on Tyneside with Dana Ashworth playing an integral role in that. Um, who are you most fearful of in this Newcastle United uh, side then? Like I said earlier on the show, they are looking a bit tired. The midfield is looking a bit done in. There's, you mentioned there that the Brighton are kind of, you know, down the bare bones. We'll saw Newcastle, especially across that midfield with Sean Longstaff out and not bringing another midfielder in in January. Still got the likes of Bruno though, even though he's probably about 70, 80% fit. I'm going to hedge my bet and say that he might be the name on the tip of your tongue is someone you're, you're fearing on Thursday? Uh, no, actually. Uh, no. One player that I think is is pure box office is um, Isaac up top. I think he's got pretty much everything. Um, I, I, I think there's there's been times when, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, he's maybe not the most physical of players. He's deceptive. Of... He's deceptive. I wouldn't like to get in a battle with him. Um, so, but I, I think he's not, he's not sort of like, maybe like a Mitrovic type bullying striker, but he can hold him. He can look after himself, but he's also seemingly deceptively quick and he's got fantastic feet. I mean, obviously everyone would have seen that unbelievable run against Everton where he just 
jinked past everyone um, with Lee. So I don't know. I, I think the fact that he offers multiple threats, aerial, um, you know, I think he can he can link up with his teammates well. So he's not just sort of fox in the box type thing. He, he moves about a lot and he's got quick feet. I think that's he he could be um, uh, a big threat. I, I do. It, it depends a little bit on how Brighton set up because if Caicedo's in the midfield, I do back Brighton's midfield to, to sort of win that battle. Um, but if he has to go right back again, which he has proven to do, well, he's, he's done very well against Arsenal and Manchester United, uh, that could be a more level playing for them. Maybe Bruno could come into it, but I think Isaac would be the one to watch for me. What's well, interesting, Isaac has started out on the left-hand side for the last two games with Callum Wilson up front. Big debate whether that this experiment has worked for Newcastle. I don't think personally that it has. I would start Isaac up front on Thursday and drop Wilson to the bench. Now, my reasoning for that, and you may well destroy my reasoning for that, and it was because I felt if it's Callum Wilson, who's a bit more of a battler, he's a bit more physical, he's got a bit more about him, Lewis Dunk will really enjoy that battle. However, again, in my view, if it's Isaac with a bit more pace, he's good with the ball at his feet, he's going to run at the defence, Lewis Dunk might not find that so comfortable. Am I right in that assumption? No, I think it's a fair one. I, I think uh, in the past, Cam Wilson's is really, <laughs> he's really given uh, Lewis Dunk a lot of problems. I think it was only the the nil-nil draw back in August where I think Brighton probably deserved to win that game. Um uh, Wilson didn't really get much of a sniff in that one, but in previous ones, he, he's really given Dunk the runabout. So yeah, he's that he's definitely someone who could. And you know, Dunk, I, I think, is someone who's on his day is fantastic. He does have off days. He was pretty poor against Everton. Uh, um, Calvert Lewin was fantastic against him. He really ran circles around him, and he's got that sort of that pace, that power, that unbelievable sort of leap on him. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, as I say, you know, Newcastle were third in the league. They've got threats all over the place. On their day, they can beat anyone. So, yeah, I think this is this is a, a really good um, good matchup. And uh, yeah, either time, uh, either team can hurt any other at any um, given moment. I think. Yeah, Brighton in the last six games, twelve points from eighteen, four wins, two defeats. Newcastle ten points from the last eighteen. Brighton eight away Premier League victories. Uh, joint with Newcastle and only Man City and Arsenal have got more. And of course, on Newcastle at home are forced to be reckoned with. Ten wins at home, uh, five draws and only two defeats. And they were to Liverpool rather harshly and then to Arsenal um, just the other week. 32 goals for Newcastle at home, only 13 against. So, you know, they score goals at home and they keep a tight ship at the back. What's the biggest weakness of Brighton? What will Eddie Howe and Newcastle United be targeting? Oof, good question. Um, I'd say uh, I think on the on the transition. I think the counter attack. I, I think um, especially if Pascal Gross plays at right back, he is. Um, I I reckon I had a hip operation like a year or so ago. I think I'm faster than him. Um, he yeah, he's not the quickest. Uh, He's very good in terms of if you're going forward and you've got the ball because he can drift into midfield. But I think if you run at him, they could be in a bit of trouble. And and yeah, Lewis Dunk is is you know big and physical, but he's not the quickest. Um, Levo Colwell can shift pretty well and purposely stupid can as well. But 
yeah, I, I think if you can if you can turn the ball over and um, when when Brighton are sort of trying to pass it through you in in your own um, in sort of the, uh, the other team's own half and you hit them on the counter attack, I think that's that's where they can they can be hurt. And, and if and if their passing game isn't quite as precise, yeah, as you talked about that pressing game, they could yeah, Jason still. It, in the past, I mean, he has definitely improved in that sense. Because um, he, he, just really quickly, Robert Sanchez was the number one goalkeeper for a long, long time, uh, and then Jason Still, who uh, has has basically like a phoenix from the ashes, you know, kind of risen to prominence uh, after um, you know a really tough time at Sunderland. Obviously, he was in that Sunderland Till I Die documentary. Um, something he's actually admitted to never watching. Because uh, he said it was just a dark time in his life, um, but he, yeah, he, he's a better footballer than Sanchez, um, and he's key in Brighton building up from the back. But yeah, if he's you know slightly off it, um, Brighton can be hurt. Well, fingers crossed. From a Newcastle point of view, Eddie Howe's side can capitalise on that. All that remains to be done then, Richie, is to ask you your score prediction. How is this one going to go? I'm going to go for a Desmond 2-2. I'm going to go for a 3-1 Newcastle. I think everything's going to fall into place. An early goal, Isaac early goal, and then we'll go from there. Newcastle will get those valuable three points in the race for the top four. Richie, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure to welcome you on to the Everything is Black and White podcast. So you guys listen hit that follow button on your podcast provider. Leave us a rating and review as well. And head over to chroniclelive.co.uk for all the latest Newcastle United news, including the live blog of this game on Thursday. We'll see you very soon. Mm-hmm.